you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now in fast, the crude climb. WTI grinding higher, up almost 7% this week. Nat gas now spiking, too. Should investors and consumers get ready for energy prices to push much higher from here? Plus, retail revival. The XRT, the ETF that tracks the sector, up almost 18% in the last month. And with the big names like Walmart, Target, and Home Depot reporting next week, is now the time to ring the register, or should you try them on for size? And later, place your bets. DraftKings jumping more than 65% in the last month. This as the sports betting world gets set for the start of the NFL and college football seasons. Is there still time to put your cash on the table? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight. Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, Jeff Mills, and Julie Beal of Kane Anderson Rudnick. And we start off tonight with a market rally running out of steam. Stocks unable to stay in the green today after another better than expected inflation report. The S&P gave up a more than 1% gain to end the day with a slight loss. The Dow managed to stay positive but closed well off its highs too. The reversal coming even as the latest PPI report showed input costs rose less than expected in July. So does today's market action suggest the bulls have lost their grip on this market, guys. They're still in control without question, Melms, but it's sort of slipping through their hands. Mm. It's like when you play tug of war and you start yes. to get tired and it, and it just goes through. Yeah, yeah. through. That's, that's what's happening in the Bulls right now. So now the Bears appear to be winning today, and I'll tell you why. Not only did the S&P give up its gains, we're going to talk about it. 4,200, a 50% retracement of the recent low, 3,600 and change, and the all-time high. It makes sense that we stopped here. And the reversal is interesting, not only because the S&P 500, HYG is something I talk about all the time. It had a huge reversal to the downside today. A point in the HYG is a big deal, and it's still in a significant downtrend from December. Jeff Mills, who seems like he's in interrogation room, I'm sure we're going to talk to him in a second. He's been talking about this as well. I think it's important to watch. The decor is kind of sparse, I have to say. <laughs> um, I will I will play the other side of this uh, and, and be the sunshine, perhaps, in this sea of bull, uh, bears. What if we should read this as the S&P managed to hold on to yesterday's gains? We didn't completely rethink the good news from yesterday. We actually maintain that level. Jeff. Oh, okay. Sorry. I didn't know you were coming to me there. Yeah. And first of all, on Monday, Sully said that my, my office here looked like I was at a WeWork or a Marriott. I assure you I'm not. This is actually my office, as sad as maybe that is. But listen, I, I thought one thing was sort of interesting. I was thinking about it this morning, and, and it's really the complexion of the rally, not necessarily the levels. It's really the ARK stocks that are ripping. It's Peloton up 20% in two days. I don't necessarily view that as good or healthy. It's a lot of these parts of the market that are predicated upon low rates, a Fed pivot, this peak inflation narrative. Um, so I, I just don't know that that's all sustainable. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I think I mentioned this too, trying to think about if we're reaching escape velocity. I talked about this technical measure of 90% of stocks being above their 50-day moving average. Still not there. It's better at 84%, so we're close. 
but usually you have to hit that 90% to actually trigger. And look, for me, it would just be very unusual to see the start of a new bull market with the yield curve some 40 basis points inverted. So I have a hard time getting on board with the fact that, you know, we've seen the lows. Uh, you know, I tweeted at my own peril a week or so ago that the rally was running out of steam, but I actually think that it is now. Yeah, I'll just say this. I mean, you could say whatever you want over the last couple of days, whether it's these kind of growthy names that are down 60, 70, 80 percent or whatever that had these massive rallies. To me, it really goes back to a narrative that we were talking about the better part of the second half of last year. It's these top five or six names that make up six, seven, eight trillion in combined market cap. This week, Apple made up, I guess, close to 8% of the S&P 500. That is an index of 500 stocks, Mm. people. Guy, you can do that math there. So, you know, I mean, you think about that and you think about the concentration of those names. You think about Apple is up 30% from its lows. Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all up at least 20%. Tesla has obviously had this huge rally. So again, you know, maybe we see this crowding. We had Danny Moses on the desk on Tuesday. He was saying you're going to see this flight to quality of some of those names. We know that Microsoft just put up a quarter. All those stocks put up good quarters. But that concentration, again, where we are, given all the uncertainty, all the macro headwinds that we have, and the economic data that I think we can all agree gets worse before it gets better, even with the CPI print, the PPI print coming down from 9.1% 9.1% or 11 point whatever in the in the PPI. They're still going to be very uh, elevated for some time here. So, again, I don't love the crowding in those names. And I actually think it makes this rally very, very vulnerable if we do see any of these names start to crack as we get into the end of Q3. So, Julie, the premium accorded these largest names. You should not follow that. These are not the most defensive stocks in the market. Is there danger here? I, I think some of these are quite defensible stocks, right? We, you know, Google has a relative monopoly. Its biggest risk is regulation, not really, you know, much weakness in its business in terms of competition. I mean, sure, people are going to be spending a little less on ad, but you know, that is a pretty quality business. But I think, broadly speaking, valuation still matters. You know, I think we forgot about that in, you know, in 2020 and then a little bit of 2021, and now it's become really important again. And I think it still is. I think you can find quality without being in mega caps, but I completely agree. A rally that's driven by a handful of companies is not an encouraging signal. You want some breadth and some confidence, and I don't think we're seeing that right now. Haven't we seen a rally built on the biggest names for quite some time? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, point? and that's been, listen, and that was for I mean, years. Before, the market, yeah, Exactly, years. So why The market was being, like, right now the Mets are being carried by a few different guys. I mean, there are a lot of slackers on Perfect. that team. It's a Metaphor, perfect analogy, yeah. perfect. but you know, few guys are carrying the squad. At a certain point, that doesn't ha- that does not work, and what's unsustainable, as they say, the same thing's going to happen here. And the problem is these names that are now carrying the load, as they say, valuations are getting stretched. And I will tell you, we talk about great quarters. Microsoft quarter was not great. Let's not confuse the issue here. It was not a great quarter. As a matter of fact, as I've said, the knee jerk was to take it from 254, where it closed that day, down to 242, probably headed lower until they said, we're not seeing a slowdown in demand. And that changed everything. But the quarter wasn't great, nor was the Apple quarter great. We've seen many better quarters, nor was the Google quarter great either. The stock reactions were great. 
The bar was low. The, the bar, bar was, was low. Yeah, but, but to, to Julie's point, you know, I mean, the valuations, again, for these stocks that have had these huge rallies, you know, Apple, again, you could call whatever quarter you thought they had, but that revenue growth and, and that earnings growth, I mean, does, does it justify 27 times this year, 26 times next? And so, again, we have a much higher rate environment. We have, listen, the macro headwinds that remain from COVID, from supply chain disruptions, from a war in Europe, from the potential of further disruptions as it relates to what's going on with Taiwan. I think that, you know, you could have said, you could have poo-pooed, you know, like geopolitical sort of stuff, and people did. That's why this whole transitory argument was very prevalent among the Fed and many economists as we were coming into the end of last year. But as soon as things got kind of weird in Europe, that changed the game. And so if you want to just do the same thing and dismiss the potential for something going on with China and Taiwan, then we might be in the exact same situation with risk assets going haywire. And don't forget, it wasn't just stocks. Remember what the dollar did. Remember what all these industrial commodities did, what all these ags did, what yields, the volatility in yields. So again, that's not a great place for equity valuations, in my opinion, especially if we do have a stagflationary environment for the balance of this year into next. But if we knew, for instance, that the 10-year yield would remain at about 2.8%, and yes, on a relative basis, we are higher than we were a year ago, but we are not 3% and moving higher, Jeff, does that afford you the ability to be in these higher premium names? I mean, isn't that what lower yields do for us? I think in, in part, maybe, but I think what we're going to end up seeing over the next couple of months, and I think I said this the other day on the show, is this divergence in gross stocks between, you know, the quality stuff, like we mentioned, Microsoft, Amazon, et cetera, versus the art complex type, type name. So I do think lower rates can help growth, generally speaking, but I do think the market's going to be discerning because to Dan point, Dan's point, I don't think we've reached the bottom relative to the economy. I, there's been this narrative this week now that, you know, the market tends to bottom along with peaks in CPI. That's true. But it's usually when you see peaks in CPI along with bottomings and leading economic indicators, improvements in unemployment claims, you're seeing those things move in the opposite direction. So what I think that ends up meaning is earnings still have to come down. This market can get more expensive without it going up at all, because I think the denominator needs to compress from here. And that's going to be the challenge for a lot of these cyclical stocks that I've talked about. So that brings me back to that growth argument, quality growth where companies' earnings are slightly more insulated, that's where I think you want to be because I do think rates are probably closer to a top than not. You know, it's interesting you brought up, Guy, uh, the, the most recent quarters and how investors really cheered because it wasn't as bad as we thought. And we sort of forgot about then the close revisions that we had to guidance mm-hmm. shortly after. We saw that again earlier this week with the Micron, for instance. But, Julie, I'm, I'm wondering how you think about companies' guidance. If you are of the belief that things are going to get worse before they get better, you know, on a macroeconomic basis. Do you believe these forecasts that the companies have given us so far out of Q2? I think some management teams have been thoughtful in terms of building guidance and taking it on the chin in their stock price. That's reasonable. But I think there are a lot of management teams that are just kind of crossing their fingers and hoping it all turns out okay. And I think there's a lot of vulnerability, I, I, when, especially when it comes to something like FX. I don't think there's nearly enough FX baked into a lot of these earnings. And while it's, you know, I, I appreciate that everyone wants to talk about constant currency results. At the end of the day, in cash, you're bringing back less cash. And that cash is going to be pretty critical if we see any contraction in credit quality. 
All right. Meantime, nat gas and crude oil rallying today after the IEA raised its demand forecast for 2022. And WTI is on pace for its best week since mid-April. For more on where prices are going, let's bring in CNBC contributor Halima Croft. She is the managing director, head of global commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Halima, you know what strikes me are the warnings, um, you know, across Europe about conserving energy. Saving one kilowatt hour now means one more that you'll have in the wintertime. Where are energy prices headed in your view? I mean, I think we have to be very, very concerned about what happens, I would say, in the last month of this year, because that's when these European sanctions on Russian oil are set to kick in, which would not only mean that you have two million barrels of Russian oil that can't go into Europe, but if these shipping and insurance sanctions actually take effect as well, it's going to be very hard to move those barrels to Asia as well. So you could be talking about a multi-million barrel Russian disruption come December 5. Now, the U.S. government is working with the Europeans on a potential price cap solution that would potentially allow those barrels to move to refiners like Reliance if they certify that they're discounted barrels. But it's not clear they can get this mechanism up and running by December. So I think a lot of market participants are saying, well, Russian production has actually remained quite elevated. India and China is taking the product. The worst is behind us. But I would say we have not yet seen really significant Russian sanctions on energy. Those are coming in December. Halim, a lot of people think global slowdown stands to reason crude oil should go lower. But the supply-demand fundamentals are still completely out of whack. And we're talking about demand levels we haven't seen since pre-COVID with supply that's just not there. The price should be higher. And I think we're starting to see it over the last couple of days. Well, I think macro funds were particularly concerned about recession, but we have not seen any signs of wholesale demand destruction. Yes, China is soft, but we have not seen a significant fall off, for example, in gasoline demand here. And so the question is, do you have enough supply? Again, as I look out at the back half of the last quarter of this year, we're going to have this SPR release, this million barrel a day U.S. SPR release that winds down in October. These Russia energy sanctions, they hit in December. OPEC does not have additional barrels to put on the market to plug this type of gap. And so I do think that we should be particularly focused on what happens with these sanctions when the U.S. SPR release winds down. So how do you how do you think about the situation in terms of where uh, gas prices go, where oil prices go, and whether or not the Europeans will actually have the stomach to stick by these sanctions in the middle, in the dead of winter, when already they're worried about um, conserving energy. Melissa, that is the top question. Will Europe have the stomach to see these sanctions through? The Russians have every intention to make this as painful for Europe as possible. So what do they do? They turn off the gas. Gas is not the revenue earner for Russia that oil is. Gas is the weapon of choice. There is no easy replacement product for Russian pipe natural gas into Europe. That's why they're not sanctioning natural gas. But that's what the Russians are doing. They are cutting gas flows into Europe, forcing Europeans to have to think about heating and eating, who suffers in terms of industrial curtailments, because it's going to be a really difficult supply situation in Europe, especially if it's a cold winter. So that's what the Russians are saying. How much do you want to support Ukraine, Europe? Are you willing to risk massive economic dislocation to do so? All right, Halima, we got to let you go. Thank you so much. Always great Thank to get you. your thoughts, Halima Croft.
All right. So industrial curtailment, that's what I sort of focus in on when, when those words cross Halima's lips. Uh, Julie, how do you think about that? I mean, that's that's sort of the factor that that I don't think many people are pricing into the markets um, and, and companies exposure to Europe. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think having companies that have a lot of exposure to Europe is, is pretty risky. There are different pockets that you can be in. You know, I think of a company like a Bentley Systems, which does infrastructure software and they have a certain amount of business that's that's in Europe. That's kind of mission critical software. I don't think that's going to be a problem. But if I think about other types of businesses that are particularly on the consumer discretionary side, I think they're going to have a very, very hard time. I think we're all underestimating the level of dislocation this is going to be because it's just so hard to replace those gas stores. Yeah, I would just say this about industrial curtailment. To me, that speaks to slower growth, and it also means to weakening margins. And you put those things together. I mean, we can all kind of guess that Europe is going to be in. We can debate about a recession here in the U.S. It really doesn't matter. We know that what's going on there. And I would just say this is that the issues about these sort of sanctions on Russian oil, I mean, they're not going to change. I don't think it's going to break the will from an economic standpoint. Uh, it, this is the, the, the future of Europe. It's the future of NATO versus this power that does have this control. I think what they really is that they made a huge mistake of the reliance on Russian gas. And that has to change. If they back down this winter, I think that they set themselves back in their initiatives to kind of like stay the course. So to me, I don't think that's changing anytime soon. And I just think that what does a European recession mean for the rest of the world right now? We know that Chinese growth is not particularly great. And ours is going to be below the 2.2% we were averaging in GDP prior to the pandemic for some time. So global growth is the thing that's not coming back anytime soon. Coming up, two big reports pointing to softening inflation. So what does that mean for the consumer? Top economist Mark Zandi will join us to break it down. But first, we're all over the after-hours move in Rivian. Shares are on the move. Now they're just higher fractionally um, on its quarterly report. we the numbers next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Rivian. Shares of the EV company Volatile after hours saying it expects an even bigger loss for the year. Revenues for the quarter, though, did beat. Phil LeBeau has been on the conference call. He joins us now with the latest. Phil. Melissa, they have just started the Q&A portion of that call. Let's run down the numbers. We'll hear from CEO RJ Scaringe in just a little bit. As you mentioned, the revenue is coming in stronger than expected. And yes, this was a slightly smaller than expected loss for the second quarter, losing a buck 62 a share with revenues coming in at $364 million. There's good and bad within the company's uh, guidance as you look forward here. There is a $700 million greater loss for 2022. That's some of the bad news that's in there. That EBITDA loss is now expected expected to be $5.4 billion. But for 2022, they are reaffirming their production guidance of building 25,000 vehicles and potentially adding a second shift at the end of Q3. Here's RJ Scrinch just a few minutes ago on the conference call. While we continue to manage supply chain constraints, we are encouraged by the progress we're making, which is important for us to be able to add a second shift for General Assembly towards the end of this quarter. As you take a look at shares of Rivian, a couple other notes to uh, to touch on here, one of them being that reservations. Previously, they said it was over 90,000. That was back in May. Now they have over 98,000 R1 reservations in the system. So an increase in the reservation backlog. And they also say that they're on schedule to launch the uh, R2 vehicles in Georgia. Remember, that's a new plant that's being built down there. And the plan is to build them and start rolling them out in 2025. We're going to jump back on the call, Melissa, but so far they're just beginning the Q&A, and I expect there's going to be a fair number of questions about what they're saying with regard to the supply chain and the constraints that are still there. But the important thing, Melissa, is they are reaffirming their guidance for 25,000 vehicles produced this year. Mm -hmm. Melissa? Right. Um, And, of course, people want to know what the potential impact would be of losing the, the EV tax credit, right, Phil, from the Inflation Reduction Act? He just got asked that question, Melissa. Oh, he, did. he just re- he just received that question. And, and look, they they admit that you know these are higher end vehicles, the R1T, which is why they have put out to their reservation list. Look, if you want the current seventy five hundred dollar EV tax credit, you're going to have to lock it in and do that before the president signs the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is likely to happen early next week once the House passes the bill. So they've told their customers, you've got an opportunity here to lock in this $7,500 EV tax credit because under the new system, you're unlikely to get it. Most of the vehicles, the R1Ts, the average transaction price is coming in over $90,000. So the customers know that. Now, whether or not that impacts future reservations, hard to tell at this point, Melissa. All right, Phil, thanks. Phil Abowie is going to get back on that call. Um, R is not in the dawn trade. N is in the dawn trade. Yes, Mm. I know how to spell. Thank you. N is for Neo. And I'll I'll play the game with you, sister. Because I would you rather? And the answer is Neo. And listen, Neo is expensive. I get it. Let's take a look at Rivian. Should have never been a hundred and eighty dollar stock, and we talked about it at the time. Probably shouldn't have been a nineteen dollar stock in May. Doubled since then. But right now it's trading about 17 times revenue this year, and it trades about seven times next year's revenue. Still too expensive in my opinion. So I don't think it gets down to 19, but I think this has a high 20 handle. 
I would rather be in Neo. It's worth noting, you know, Phil just said that EBITDA loss of uh, $5.5 or something like that. They have about $16.5 billion in cash from that IPO, okay? Yeah. And just, just put that in some context here. It's a $20 billion enterprise value now, okay? So they have a $35 billion market cap. Tesla, which is obviously very profitable, has a $900 billion market cap, and they have about $19 billion in cash. So I guess my point is there are alternatives in the space. They're all really expensive. They're all losing money other than uh, Tesla right now. But I guess the fact that the stock is unchanged, given that news, tells you that there is a bid for alternatives to Tesla out there right now. Is investors think about it. So, Julie, I'll, I'll pose one to you. One being a would you rather question, and that would be Tesla or Rivian. This is rough. Probably Tesla, because I do think scale really matters in this business. You know, I would quibble a little bit on this concept that they're really profitable because so much of their profitability comes from the ability to sell tax credits rather than the profitability on their car. But just like rough back of the envelope, if you look at your market cap relative to how many cars they're projecting to sell, uh, Rivian is, is like $1.4 million a car. It's just, I mean, that's not, it, to me, the valuation on all of these EV plays is extremely high. These aren't software businesses. They have to make cars. So I, I worry a lot about the, the concept of scale for these businesses, you know, because Ford and, and GM are starting to kind of figure this out a little better. All right. Another earnings alert here on Illumina. This is a, a whopper. Shares of the gene sequencing company plunging after its report. It's losing, oh down 19% right now. The company swung to a loss in the quarter, lowered revenue guidance for the year. Jeff, you have been in this stock. This is not a small company to lose 20% in one shot like this. No, it's not. And we actually still have exposure to the stock, but it's through a fund that we invest in. But listen, you know, this is still the global leader in DNA sequencing. It's a massive market and they have a pretty strong hold on a large share. So I'm not so worried about the company longer term. I think some of the growth in earnings is probably realistic. And, and I do think after the move you're seeing in after hours, you know, down 19, 20 percent or whatever it is, if you look in the out years, you're talking about a multiple of probably sub 30 times. So I actually think given the move we're seeing right now, it's looking sort of cheap to me here. Guy? Well, I'm just looking. It typically trades about a million shares. This will trade probably 20 million shares on a Friday tomorrow, which is significant. And this was, and Jeff can speak to this, this stock was a $525 stock. Not that that matters. And here we are now, still with significant market cap, to your point. Tomorrow could be the capitulation day. Jeff is spot on. It's a very important company, terrible results. But if you see a 20 million share day, I think you buy the stock for a trade. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Ready for retail? A ton of big names on deck to report. Are they seeing the impact of softening inflation? And what will they say about the strength of the consumer? That's next. Plus, streamers surpassed. Disney overtaking Netflix in subscribers. And that has options traders piling in for some Disney magic. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. While the government's latest inflation numbers point to relief, investors may get a very different picture next week. Big box retailers, Walmart, Home Depot, Target and Lowe's are among the retail names out with quarterly numbers. So what should we expect from these reports? I don't know, Jeff, it's been a roller coaster ride for investors uh, in, in Walmart and Target. I mean, now they're made whole, basically, since the, since the warnings. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what these companies have to say. You know, we, we've heard from some companies that have some insight into retail, whether it's, you know, a MasterCard, a P&G. Uh, and they've talked about some kind of spending mix shifts, with, which worries me a little bit. P&G kind of selling less units for a higher price, uh, even U.S. Steel, right? Weaknessing consumer versus the rest of their business. So I'll be very interested to hear directly from some of these companies. But to your point, I think what's been going on the past couple of weeks, it's not really kind of the, the haves and the have nots or however you would describe it, but it's the stocks that were really beat up in retail. They're the ones that are catching a bid. If you look at year to date performance, uh, one of the best performers is Dollar Tree, for example, one of the worst Wayfair. Uh, what's happened the past two weeks? Dollar Tree has been one of the worst and Wayfair has been one of the best. So it's kind of this bad to less bad for some of these retailers. You're getting a snapback off of really oversold levels. But I would still prefer to be in a Dollar Tree or a Dollar General or even a Lulu coming up, up at the higher end. So uh, that's where I would be focusing my attention as an investor. But these calls will be uh, very, very telling, in my opinion. Which retailer are you watching most closely, Julie? Uh, I think definitely Walmart and Target are an important component because understanding how the low-end consumer is managing through these higher prices, right? I know everyone's super excited about a lower CPI, but shelter and food have just been climbing nonstop, and and that's just unavoidable. So I think there's definitely going to be a squeeze at the lower end. We're looking at off-price quite a bit because, frankly, the levels of inventory that are in the system that have been building – I think those are going to cascade through back to school and holiday, and it's going to be a lot of margin pain for most of the retailers. All right. Well, despite two encouraging inflation reports this week, our next guest warns a disappointing batch of consumer data is is ahead. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to speak with you again. We're getting a lot of housing data next week. As Julie had just mentioned, housing is a very sticky part of inflation that doesn't go go down so easily as, as easily as goods prices. And so what how do you assess the, the consumer right now? Uh, good. Uh, hanging in there, doing their part. Uh, you know, they're not spending with abandon, but they're spending at a pace that's consistent with kind of pre-pandemic, pre-pandemic ra- uh, spending rates. They're shifting their spending, though. And that's why you know, the numbers we might get next week on retail are going to look soft because people are not buying stuff, which is what they were buying during the teeth of the pandemic when we were all sheltering in place. And they're, now they're out traveling and going to ball games and restaurants. So they're just shifting their spending. So, you know, depending on which part of the retail elephant you touch, you're going to get a different perspective. But if you took a, take a look at the elephant, it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's enough to keep the economy moving forward. And the economy is 73% driven by people effectively buying things, and I get it. And I understand the data lately has been more encouraging. I think people feel a little more optimistic. But, you know, winter's going to be here before you know it. Energy prices, I think, are continue to soar. Despite the fact that wage growth is there, people are still losing with an 8.5% inflation print. Does the consumer get scared in the fall, and are we just sort of whistling past the graveyard, as Danny Moses said on Tuesday night? <laughs> Well, you know, if inflation stays where it is, it's 8.5% CPI inflation through July. If it, if it stays there, we got a problem because uh, you're right. Wages are rising 5 6% at most. So that means real uh, wages after inflation is declining. It's cutting into people's purchasing power. Now, they can manage that for a while because they have a lot of 
extra savings they built up during the pandemic because they were sheltering in place and not spending or got a lot of government supports. So that helps tide them over. But they can't do that forever. So we do need to see inflation moderate. And that's why these inflation statistics we got on Wednesday and today are really very encouraging because they signal that we've seen a peak in inflation and inflation is headed in the right direction. But it has to continue to moderate. Or otherwise, you're right. By Christmas, uh, we're going to have a, a problem. Hey, Marcus, Jeff Mills. Uh, quick question just relative to sort of this good news is bad news scenario. You know, how do you view what's going on in the labor market? Obviously, good news kind of underpins some of the fundamentals of the economy. But then to your point about inflation, it may embolden the Fed, maybe makes them think they haven't done enough. So how do you square all of that in terms of the impact on the economy and then obviously the markets? Well, you know, I'm, I'm more of a good news kind of guy. I like jobs and creating jobs. Uh, and so that's really important. And the uh, strong job numbers we got in July just show you how resilient the economy is and that it can take a lot. I mean, the pandemic, the Russian invasion, these are massive supply shocks. It's, it's, a, it's amazing our economy is still standing after suffering these two shocks. And the, the labor market is testimonial to that. Now, job growth needs to slow. Uh, I mean, unemployment is three and a half percent. We can't see that go any lower. Otherwise, wage and price pressures are going to develop and the Fed's going to have to respond to that. But I think they'll get their way. And in this coming week, we'll see the reason why. We'll see the softer retail numbers. And most importantly, we'll see those those weaker housing statistics. That's the most rate sensitive sector of the economy. And that's got to lead the slowdown. And uh, I think we'll, we'll get a sense of that next week. Mark, great to see you. Thank you. Mark Zandi sure of Moody's. I love Mark's work. I follow him a long time. I, when I hear statements, though, like it's amazing how resilient this economy is given those supply shocks, I'm looking at a chart right here of the Fed balance sheet that prior to the pandemic was below $4 trillion, and here we are just under $9 trillion. I don't think that is the framework for a really resilient, strong economy. I see an economy in 2019 that was actually already weakening, right? And we already had that inverted yield curve back then, if you think about it. So to me, and I, I listen, he's an economist. He's, he's forgotten more about economics than I'll ever know, but I don't think that translates particularly well to risk assets if you think about what it took to be this resilient. Right. Uh, Julie, you're nodding in agreement with Dan. No, I completely agree. I mean, you know, it's it's great for us to talk about the resilient consumer, and it, it's the consumer has been an absolute beast. But to forget the, how much stimulus has been pumped into this economy, we're not looking at any kind of real data. The shadow of all this stimulus coursing through the system doesn't give us a good sense of the underlying strength and health. If you talk to the average person, they don't think that things are amazing. They're tired. So I, I, I just think like, yes, the consumer is resilient. And I, I think that's just true about the U.S. consumer generally. But I'm, I'm pretty negative when you consider just the wave of liquidity that we've had. There's also this pull forward that had happened, right, in terms of spending on all sorts of things, in terms of spending on services now, in terms of spending on travel. I know a lot of people have been going on vacation this summer. I don't know if they're going to do the same level of travel um, come the fall, come the winter, come next spring even, Jeff. Yeah, and I think that's what we have to start paying really close attention to. And in looking at the labor market, looking at initial unemployment claims kind of moving in the wrong direction. So you have this spend redirect into services, but how sustainable 
is that? I mean, you're already starting to see delinquency rates tick up, uh, particularly in the subprime part of the market. So maybe that's a little bit of a canary in the coal mine. Banks starting to tighten lending standards a little bit. So you're starting to see the very beginnings of all of this, even though it hasn't been you know, completely evident in, in earnings calls and things of that nature. But I, I do think that that's coming. And just because consumers have healthier balance sheets today than they did in, you know, say, 2008, 2009, you know, that was certainly the case in the, the 60s and 70s and even in the early 80s. And we had five recessions during that period. So I think we're in for some sort of negative credit cycle, uh, even if it's not as severe as maybe what we've experienced recently. Yeah, and, and the pushback on the balance of consumer balance sheet is credit card debt in this country is about to surpass a tri- trillion with a T. Mm-hmm. First time ever. And I think a quarter of a million new credit cards have been opened since the spring. I mean, that's not, to me at least, that's not a particularly healthy sign. Coming up, a check on chips. The SMH Semi ETF trying to claw back after a slew of big warnings earlier in the week. So should you jump on board this comeback train? We'll break that down. But first, a whole new world for Disney, the House of Mouse, overtaking Netflix in total subscribers. And the news has options traders piling in the details when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Disney jumping more than 4.5% on the back of yesterday's earnings report. And one options trader is betting on more magic ahead. Mike Coe has the action. Hi, Mike. Yeah, we often talk about a lot of options activity ahead of earnings, but this time we got a lot of it following earnings. It traded 6.3 times its average daily call volume. And we saw a lot of activity, obviously, in the weekly options. But the trade that caught my eye was actually a purchase of 2,500 of the June 2023 150 calls. The buyer paid 490 a contract for those, obviously betting that the stock could rally 30% or more to get above that strike price by June expiration, a little less than a year from now. And I should point out, our fund is actually long the stock, not the options, just the stock. Early this morning, Jeff Mills, Disney stock was higher by 9%. And then by the end of the day, we were down by uh, up, excuse me, by less than 5%. And of course, the whole market turned. But I'm just wondering how you interpret that move, given the results that we did have from Disney. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a little market beta fizzle. But I think generally, you know, that $100 level on Disney has been really strong support for years, actually. And it held it once again. Now it's turning higher. But uh, during our equity research meeting today, uh, two analysts, I think, nearly came to blows on you know, whether they like Disney or not. You know, on the one side, saying streaming subs are, are stickier. There's more runway with families, diversified revenue, you know, versus a Netflix, for example, where you know, the other talking about cannibalization between the leg- legacy media business and the DTC business. So a lot of back and forth there. I think the stock looks reasonably good here from a valuation standpoint. The chart looks good. So we still hold the name. Hope it didn't happen in that fancy office of yours. They could have used those chairs as weapons. I mean, that's about the only thing in that. I mean, do you put anything on your desk? That's his office. There's not a picture. There's not a mug. There's not a pen. That's stark. By the way, <laughs> last night on CNBC's Fast Money, 5 p.m., you might be familiar with the show. Disney came out, and Mike Coco Beware, who does options actions Friday yeah, at 5.30. right there in the, one Hi, of the boxes. He really mentioned the 150 great. strike. Uh-huh. And what did I say last night, Mel? I said, this is a game I would play. They're going to earn $6 next year. You put a 25 multiple on that six, which is reasonable historically for Disney, 150. 
What did Brian Kelly uh, text you, Dan, about Jeff Mills's office? <laughs> I'm just going to round this out, and then we're going to put it aside and never comment B- on it B- again. BK is in oh, parts man, of I'm getting he, killed. He just texted me. He said, is, is Mills and Staples picking out office furniture? <laughs> I was like, no, this is office. <laughs> I have an artist. I got I have nothing. An artist I can't here. defend it. He can get it. you some paintings. You see these paintings? You go back here. I got somebody. I had those things sitting on the floor. People saw it. I can help you with the decor just a little. <laughs> he needs a little help. Um, Send it my way. We're making fun of you, Jeff, because we love you. Uh, Mike, we'll see you later. Mike Co. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, our semis headed south, the group on pace for its worst year since 2008. But is there any hope left for the space? We'll do a chip check next in football season right around the corner. So we are rolling the dice on some gambling stocks. How to play those names when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shaking my head at the SMH this year. The semiconductor ETF down more than 20%. Is the chip slowdown just getting started? Let's get to CNBC's Christina Parts with the numbers. K-Parts in Hudson, New Hampshire. Nice pun there, Melissa. But you have a, pretty much the chip industry that's at a crossroads right now. You're dealing with a slowdown in demand where they have to slow down hiring, cut costs, all the while promising to spend billions of dollars building up foundries across the United States. That's why I came to OnSemi. This is their second hub that they opened today. And it's not just OnSemi. You have Intel, Micron, Global Foundries that are committing billions of dollars in the hopes of getting tax or subsidies from the CHIPS Act or a 25% tax credit. The problem is that's a lot of companies competing for the same pot of money that's going to be spread out over the next five years. Intel, probably the most vocal about the CHIPS Act, even though they're bleeding through cash and issued a weaker outlook. I spoke to OnSemi CEO who said it's not about the government handouts for them. We're already doing it. Yeah, you, are. you know, we didn't wait. We're doing it. What this will do is continue to do it. That's where it, it, I differentiate between OnSemi and a lot of other companies that have to be honest with you, plans on PowerPoints. I have plans in the ground. I have plans that are hiring people. I have plans that are outputting. That's what we do. There was a press conference earlier today and the Secretary of Commerce was here. I asked her specifically, when are you gonna get these subsidies out? She said they were gonna do it in the coming months, but you have to keep in mind, it's anywhere gonna be between 25 to 30% of the cost of a, a foundry, which costs anywhere between 10 and $20 billion. So where's the rest of that money gonna come from? clearly testing the patience of investors. Mel? K-Parts, thank you. Christina Partsinevelis at OnSemi. Um, is this at all a reason why the chips are trading where they, I mean, is this a, a factor, do you think, in investors' minds? In terms of the... Of, of whether or not chips are an investment today. I, I think what Steve Grosso pointed this out months ago, credit to him, saying, you know, a lot of double ordering going on. Watch out in the back half of 2022. You're going to start to see it manifest itself. And we're seeing it happen front and center. I mean, NVIDIA, I get it. Gaming, that's fine. They're going to report on the 24th. If they start talking about data center going lower, watch out. The Intel quarter, and I said it that night, that's the worst quarter that anybody's put up in any sector this entire year. It was a disaster. Mm-hmm. And then some of these stocks are just flat out expensive. Micron guiding lower. Carter Braxton Worth had a great chart of the stocks. We still are in a declining trend line. So I think these things can continue to go lower. And look at the reversal in NVIDIA today if you want proof positive. Julie, you agree? 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think there's no reason why these things can't trade lower. I don't have a good sense of what that you know earnings number is going to look like. You can see demand in the consumer devices really falling off a cliff if we do hit a recession. And I'm not 100% sure that industrial is going to pick up that demand. If I have a choice, I want exposure to the latter. But I mean, who knows how it's really going to hold. And so I think they could be expensive even here. Remember that commercial with the with the freaky owl and the kid gave him a lollipop and, and he said Tootsie Roll pop. Tootsie, Tootsie pop, pop, right? Tootsie, Tootsie pop. pop. What do you got going on behind you? I mean, the inquiring minds want to know because that thing behind you over your right shoulder, I believe, is a freaky looking owl. You got to tell America here, Jules. Oh, uh, actually, at my wedding, the, the theme, all the table settings were little animals. And so we kept the owl. It's like super illegal for me to purchase it, but let's not tell anyone, right? It's just between right. us. It's between us. <laughs> it's just between us. We're good. We're good. That's fantastic. Ooh. I mean, she got the owl. Can you imagine somebody got like a cheetah and oh, a hippo? Oh, that'd be amazing. Amazing. A hippo. I mean, where would you put that? Well, I know. I mean, like in Jeff's office. So empty. Coming up, time to ante <laughs> up. Some gambling stocks ripping higher this month. So should you place your chips on these names, we'll break it down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the gambling gains in some sports betting stocks. DraftKings, Penn, and Bally's all surging this month. DraftKings is standout up nearly 63%. So with football season fast approaching, is a time to ante up on these names. Jeff, what do you say? I just don't know if any of these moves are, you know, DraftKings specific or Penn specific. It's a lot of this high risk rally that we've seen. And, you know, I think the profitability story still concerns me a little bit. You're approaching that downward sloping 200 day. So I think a name like DraftKings gets sold in the next risk off rally or excuse me, the next risk off move. The good news is that, you know, I've made the case for sports betting. I think it's a huge market. They will be a player. But I think from here, it's a, it's a long-term type, type of situation. Uh, maybe near-term, you know, we've had news from NGM talking about customer acquisition costs coming down, profitability next year for them. So that's a good thing, but I think you can wait on this one. What do you think, Guy? I think win is interesting here. It's starting to finally break win out. Win is the W in your dawn trade. Like, a, like an elephant. It probably wasn't at Julie's wedding, but you were like one anyway. But, I mean, if you really want the simple way to play it, I think Disney with ESPN, which finally seeming to get a lifeline with sports gambling, I mean, to me, the non-risky way to play it is with a DIS. Julie, was there an elephant at your wedding as well? <laughs> what are your thoughts on these gambling no stocks? <laughs> no elephants, I promise. No elephants harmed. Gambling stocks? Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's hard to say. It's, it, there's a lot of normalization where these stocks really benefited from people staying at home and not being out, going, able to go out and lose money hand over fist. Um, crypto's been the favorite place to do that now. But I think longer term, the outlook is still a little bit murky. So, you know, we're pretty hands off on these. All right. Up next, final trades. It is time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Julie. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I like uh, Bentley Systems. For a grumpy long-term investor like me, I want software in this downturn and the exposure to infrastructure, it's going to be less sick. Jeff Mills. 
So perhaps not surprising, given my comments this show and, and recently, I'd be a seller of ARK here. You know, it's up, what, 10 12% the past couple of days, 50% the last month. I, I just think this low-quality rally uh, fades, and I think it fades pretty soon. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I agree with that, too. If you look at Karen's IGV, that's yeah, the Tracks Enterprise software, I, I would not be chasing that right here. I think the relative underperformance to some of the bigger mega-cap names is just not impressive to me. Guy. I want to apologize to Met fans out there. They're playing great ball. You know what I mean? I was just kidding around at the top to of the Seymour? show. Tim's on vacation. And with America got to know Julie Beal tonight, which I love. And Jeff Mills, with that said, Dollar Gen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.